Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Before we begin, we want to let you know about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has digestible courses in topics from the basics of scientific thinking all the way up to stuff like quantum computing, and it doesn't get more mind-blowing than that. But Brilliant makes complex learning uncomplicated and fun. In today's episode, we discuss mysterious volcanoes on Mars and when humans are next expected to send rovers to the Red Planet. If you want to get into the mind of astrophysicists, Brilliant has an intuitive course on gravitational physics. It's a blast! The interactive sections are presented in a clean and accessible way, and you could go from knowing nothing about a topic to having a deep understanding. To put your spare time in lockdown to good use and hugely improve your critical thinking skills, go to brilliant.org slash new scientist and sign up for free. And also the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Again, that address is brilliant.org slash new scientist. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Penny Sarche, New Scientist News Editor. Joining us in the lockdown pod today is Graham Lawton. Graham's a staff writer for New Scientist. Hi, Graham. Hi there. On this week's show, we're looking at the impact of the global coronavirus crisis on wildlife and conservation. And we're going to Mars for an intriguing discovery with implications for life on the planet. And we have a message from Elon Musk. We'll also be hearing about the weirdest plant on Earth and a new bit of brain interface technology that is restoring vision to blind people. But first, did you know that rather than hunger being one thing, it's five separate things? What does that mean, Graham? Well, appetite is conventionally thought of as this kind of single unitary drive that impels us to eat until we're full. And that's both colloquially and scientifically But it turns out there's actually a lot more to it than that. You actually have five separate appetites. Now, this is the conclusion of uh, 30 years worth of research on humans and animals by two Australian biologists, David Raubenheimer and Stephen Simpson. They're both at the University of Sydney, though they did a lot of this work at the University of Oxford. Uh, They have a book out called Eat Like the Animals, and our cover story this week is all about it. When I heard about Eat Like the Animals, the first thing I thought of was the Duran Duran classic Hungry Like the Wolf. Uh, But what do you mean by five separate appetites? So what they say is that rather than simply eating any old food until we're full, we selectively try to eat the right amounts of three, the three macronutrients. So that's protein, carbohydrates and fat, plus two micronutrients, that's sodium or salt and uh, calcium. 
And each of these has a separate appetite that drives us to eat exactly the right amount of it. So if you ate, say, pure protein until you were satiated, for example, you'd still be hungry for carbs, for fat and for those micronutrients. So do we know if that's what happens to people who are on a pure protein diet, you know, those pure meat diets? Do they crave other food groups? Yeah, sometimes people are forced onto a meat-only diet due to circumstances beyond their control. In actual fact, Charles Darwin, um, on the voyage of the Beagle, was forced onto a meat-only diet when they ran out of everything else. Um, And he reported feeling hungry for other things. And however much meat he ate, he still felt hungry for other foods. That's the fat and the carbs appetite kind of screaming out to be satisfied. And there's even a name for it. It's called rabbit starvation which is nothing to do with starving rabbits, but it's to do with starving humans. Uh, rabbit meat is very lean. Uh, it's almost pure protein. And if that's all you have to eat, you will die. And you will die craving carbs and fat. Wow, I never knew that about Darwin. That's amazing. Yeah, anyway, so this system of five appetites evolved. Speaking of Darwin, it evolved so that animals, including us, who live in a complex food environment. And the food environment just really means all the food that we're surrounded by. And, you know, even though we don't live in a natural food environment, we still have our food environment. It's called the supermarket. Uh, (laughs) So that we naturally consume a balanced and kind of optimal diet. So how did they discover these five appetites? Well, mainly by looking at how other animals eat from locusts and cockroaches to slime molds and then right up to non-human primates like baboons. So they did a very interesting study a few years ago uh, when they followed a single wild baboon near Cape Town in South Africa for 30 consecutive days. And they recorded exactly what she ate and how much she ate of it. And they found that over that time period, she consumed more than 90 different foodstuffs, including discarded human food waste uh, but she always ended up eating an optimal ratio of protein to carbs and fats Um, and they chose baboons for good reason because they're quite like humans in many ways they're omnivorous uh, and they live in a very complicated food environment Um, but you know every other animal they've studied in this way does exactly the same thing and that includes humans okay tell us about the human study they did then Well, human studies are quite difficult to do, especially with nutrition, but they managed to kind of effectively imprison 10 human volunteers in a a chalet in the Swiss Alps that was far enough from any kind of bar or restaurant so they could control exactly what people ate. And they gave them um, essentially an unlimited, varied buffet and recorded exactly what they ate. And then they did some interventions like uh, depriving them of protein. Did they film this then? It sounds like a, a weird episode of Big Brother or, or Love Island, or like Food Island. Or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was like the worst TV programme ever made. They yeah. probably did film it, I imagine, I think, so they could analyse exactly what each person ate, because the key to the experiment is to know exactly what and in what quantities people were eating. And what were the results? So under those sort of under free conditions where people could eat whatever they wanted, they essentially did what the baboon did and they naturally ate a kind of optimum and healthy diet. Um, And the researchers found that this is also best explained by the idea that humans also have a five appetite system. But for the people who are deprived of protein, they hugely overate carbs and fats. And now the conventional explanation for that would be that protein is very satiating. You know, that's the standard nutrition science explanation. If you eat protein, you get full more quickly. But actually, that's not so, according to this new idea. Um, under this five appetite system, the reason is that sort of in a desperate bid to obtain enough protein, people overeat carbs and fats. You know, protein is like the master appetites and animals will override their other appetites in order to obtain the right amount. That makes sense. Uh, and I remember... When my daughter was a baby and she wasn't sleeping, uh, a doctor told us 
force loads of protein down her in the evening and that will make her sleep through the night better. And, and it did. Yeah, so um, most of those extra calories that people were eating came from, interest, this is really interesting, actually came from savoury snacks with an umami flavour. And that umami mm. is the signature flavour of protein. It's what you get from meat and some cheese, you know, that kind of savoury, savoury taste. And they largely ignored sweet snacks that were offered. So they, they, had, they had donuts and they had pastries to eat, but they went for the umami flavoured savoury snacks. Okay, and... Um- and so how does this help explain the obesity epidemic? So let's just return to the idea that protein deprived animals and humans will sort of gorge on carbs and fats to get enough protein. And that will eventually satisfy this master protein appetite because those foods do contain some protein. But it's at the expense of hugely busting your fat and carbs budget and probably the sodium one too. So this this is the maybe the most surprising bit of this story is that we actually do live in a protein poor environment. Um, despite the general increase in meat eating across the world, most people actually struggle to eat the sort of 15 or so percent of daily calories from protein that they actually need. And that's mainly because the food industry has flooded the food environment with these so-called ultra processed foods. They tend to be very low in protein because protein is expensive and very high in carbs and fats, which are cheap. So think of stuff like ready meals and frozen pizzas and dried noodles and pasta and those kind of quintessential lockdown foods. They're highly unnatural foods, but they make up more than half of a typical Western diet. And actually, some people eat them almost to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah, I'm starting to feel very seen here. (laughs) yeah throw away those instant noodles that your cupboards are full of right now well anyway according to the fao that's the food and agriculture organization of the united nations from sort of 1960 up to about the year 2000 the average u.s diet composition fell from 14 percent protein to 12.5 percent protein and the balance has been made up with fats and carbs and that shift was largely down to the increased availability of these ultra processed foods which which is why we say we live in a protein depleted environments and what do humans do when they live in a protein depleted environment they eat more carbs and fats especially when those carbs and fats taste like protein because they're flavored with umami and these are what are called protein decoys now this the biologists contend is the underlying reason why ultra processed foods are bad for us i mean the usual explanation the obvious one is that they're delicious and they're calorie laden and that is true but the real reason is that they're protein poor but they taste like protein so our master protein appetite kicks in and drives us to gorge on them. Right. So it's a it's an evolutionary explanation for the obesity epidemic. Yeah, that's right. And there's actually some quite it's not just a scientific explanation. There's actually some real news you can use in here. I mean, the simplest take home message is try to avoid ultra processed foods. They are making you fat, but not necessarily for the reason that you think. There's a lot more detail in our article and even more in the book. So I do urge you to read it if you want to take back control of your food environment. I'm really interested in this idea of these other, aside from the proteins, um, these other appetites we have. And I've seen in like nature documentaries, um, sometimes you'll get herbivores all go off to lick a certain rock so that they can get enough salt or or minerals and that kind of thing. Do we get kind of cravings then for calcium and salt? And, And what does that feel like? Do we know we're craving them? We don't now because they're ultra abundant, but in our evolutionary past, we would have. And and the biologists talk about the idea that humans probably also would have gone to mineral licks in the past and kind of licked rocks. And it also explains pica, which is this kind of peculiar obsession with eating clay and other mineral substances. But interestingly, um, pandas, which only eat bamboo, 
will travel a long way in the forest they live in to find bamboo that's growing in calcium-rich soil because the leaves are rich in calcium. And that's another line of evidence that this calcium appetite exists. Wow, amazing. That's our sci-fi alert, which means we have a story in the news this week that has already been depicted in science fiction. Rowan. Yeah, this is the news that people who've lost their sight have been given the ability to see. So I'm making little air quotes around the sea here. So they've been given the ability to see, again, thanks to a brain implant. Uh, It's quite basic at the moment, but the people had electrodes implanted in their brains on the surface of a region required for vision called the visual cortex. And when the researchers stimulated the electrodes in sequence to trace the shapes of specific letters on the surface of the brain, all the participants reported seeing glowing spots or lines forming the same letters. Wow, that's that's incredible. What did they spell out or write? <laughs> yeah, they wrote, like, ghostly message, you must pay me $50,000. Um <laughs> I don't think they wrote out actual sentences or anything like that. It was just letters. It's probably like when you're at the optician and you have to read letters off a chart. So how does it work? Yeah, it's really weird because it's similar to if someone traces a shape on the surface of your skin and you can perceive what the shape is, it's a bit like that, but on the surface of the brain. And the electrodes needed to be fired in sequence for people to be able to perceive the letters. So you'd need to put hundreds or thousands of electrodes onto the brain to to do more detailed images or get finer resolution? Yes, you would. Uh, The researchers imagine a a cortical prosthetic device with thousands of electrodes that could provide a really detailed image. Uh, They imagine starting with a device that would allow the detection of the contours of shapes that you encounter, uh, or maybe the form of a family member, and then you'd start to allow... Um, recognition and then independent navigation. So if you can't see that really would be quite amazing. It would, it really would. This is early days but it's really promising. And so what's the sci-fi link? The sci-fi, well this is almost identical to the visor worn by Geordie LaForge on Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, His visor is worn like sunglasses and scans light and converts it into electrical input in the brain. So very similar to this real world thing. Time out. We want to remind you that as a valued listener to our podcast, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for full access to the whole wealth of stuff available to subscribers. Also, we'd like to encourage you to vote for our show in the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice category. Go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote to support your favourite science podcast. Penny, this week you've been looking at how the coronavirus crisis has been affecting wildlife around the world. We keep hearing reports of animals moving into cities and more audible birdsong. So does this mean the pandemic's a good thing for nature? Well, it's certainly true that quieter cities mean that millions of people are now hearing more birds than they used to, and and that's obviously lovely. But a report for New Scientist by writer Michael Marshall this week reveals that overall, the pandemic and lockdowns present a number of really concerning challenges for wildlife, particularly conservation efforts. Right. So it's not the case that while we're all locked down indoors, nature is thriving outside. Yeah, sadly not, because while many of us are inside, it it actually makes it easier for poaching to take place. Uh, One conservation organisation, for example, has reported an increase in illegal killings of endangered turtles. 
But this kind of thing is also happening much closer to home too. Uh, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds says that 56 illegal killings of birds of prey have been reported um, taking place in the UK since the lockdown began. Uh, many of these in or near moors that are maintained for recreational grouse shooting. Yeah, that's really disturbing. I've also heard about swan killing and swan poaching going on recently too. Oh, that's unpleasant. Mm. So as well as the poaching, there's also concern that many conservation efforts uh, worldwide will soon run out of money that a lot of them are facing a sort of funding cliff. Is that because no one's awarding the grants at the moment? Yeah, so that that is an issue. Um, but the sort of broader concern is that conservation actually receives a very large amount of funding from two industries that have been completely shut down. So ecotourism, where people pay money to go and see amazing wildlife, um, and also uh, legal trophy hunting, where people pay um, to have access to, to kill things. And so without these, um, two very important sources of revenue for conservation have just been entirely cut off by lockdowns and the travel restrictions and, and that kind of thing. So this does seem to suggest that, you know, some people wag their finger at ecotourists, don't they? But this seems to suggest that overall, it's it's a really vital industry. Yeah, so I, I think, it, of course, it depends on individual circumstances. So overcrowded reserves or whales being harassed by boat after boat of whale watchers clearly isn't a good thing. Um, but the revenue that comes from ecotourism, like really often is. And another concern is that with ecotourism on hold, the value to local communities of, of keeping endangered species alive uh, could drop. So there, there are concerns that as families struggle as part of this global crisis, uh, more people may have to resort to hunting bushmeat. Uh, so that's a real worry as well at the moment. Yeah, and it's already, well, it was, it was a problem before this, so I can imagine it mm. getting worse. Um, what about zoos and aquariums? There's been some fun videos going around on social media about zoos during the pandemic how are they getting on so um the good news is so far most of them seem to be doing okay in quite a few instances governments have uh, stepped up to support uh, zoos and similar organizations many of these of course play a role in conservation by housing endangered species or conducting breeding programs and, and that kind of thing um, but there is a time limit here if people can't start going to zoos again soon paying entry fees and so on these institutions will soon start running out of the money that they they actually need to take care of their animals what will happen then yeah it's, it's it's difficult you can't just release captive animals into the wild um so the head of the world association of zoos and aquariums told us that sadly that the last resort would be to euthanize animals when you you can no longer afford to look after them that's horrendous uh, so is there any good news here yeah, there is some. So I was quite interested to learn. Um, we knew that there was this big, crucial biodiversity summit uh, due to be held in China this October. And and that's been postponed, uh, which some people actually think is a good thing or could be a good thing. That's because in January, uh, we got a bit of a preview of some of the agreements that were likely to be made at this summit later this year. And um, some of the targets that have been suggested just didn't look like they were going to be anywhere near as ambitious enough to protect the world's biodiversity. So there's now some hope among some conservationists that uh, this pandemic could actually help governments get more serious about biodiversity. 
is that a, a valid hope? Is that really going to happen? I, yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to think so. I, th- I think there's reasons why it could happen. Um, so as we've discussed before, we do know that we're much more likely to catch new viruses from animals now that humans have invaded and degraded so many of the world's natural habitats. And I think there's going to be a much wider awareness of that now and the, the real dangers that that has. And of course, we've seen some measures coming out directly because of this. So following the emergence of COVID-19, China has shut down trading of wild animals in markets and uh, China may permanently ban all wild animal trading in coming months. So there's some sort of direct action being taken there. And there will be cases where animals are actually directly benefiting from coronavirus measures too. Okay, such as? The one I'm really interested in is um, what a drop in ocean traffic means for whales. Uh, we've, we've known that for years that our oceans have become very noisy and, and that really affects whales. And whilst a certain amount of shipping is still going on, we know that the cruise season in, in places like Alaska uh, has just been cancelled really. So in Alaska specifically, researchers are using underwater microphones to see how the lack of cruise traffic uh, may be affecting humpback whale behaviour. So uh, the animals there have been really struggling in recent years. But in the absence of all of that uh, boat noise uh, that you normally get from the tourists, uh, they may now be able to communicate in ways that they're not normally able to. Uh, They might be able to spread out and chat over wider distances. It's a really exciting opportunity to see what a cut in that traffic could really do to their population. So we're still waiting on the data to see, but that caught my eye. Yeah, it's like you were saying about birdsong. We're all hearing more birdsong, but you can imagine under the oceans, uh, the whale song is really more audible as well. Yeah, I really hope they release some recordings and and we can see uh, Mm. how they start chatting. Elsewhere in the news, I saw there's been a big drop in carbon emissions recently. Yeah, so that's something we've predicted in previous episodes. Um, So it's interesting to see some of the data coming through now. It looks like coronavirus restrictions worldwide led to a decline in carbon emissions of 17% in the period up to the 7th of April. One team has calculated that the pandemic is likely to cause emissions to fall between 4 and 7.5% this year, instead of the 1% rise that had been predicted before the crisis. And um, that's the biggest drop in carbon emissions we will have seen since the Second World War. Wow, so that's a great headline figure, but on its own, that's not really going to make much difference, isn't it? Sadly not. I I was really quite disheartened to read that. Um, So, for example, if emissions do go down by 5% overall this year, um, that would be the equivalent of 0.001 degrees Celsius less warming. So that's a truly tiny amount in the grand scheme of things, especially given that we're on course for at least three degrees of warming at the moment. If you're interested in this uh, issue, we next week in the magazine, we have an interview with the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization, Pateri Talas, uh, and he talks in great detail about what the COVID-19 crisis will mean for the climate and also expresses uh, actually some really uplifting optimism that it will change the way the world operates and that we might see some concerted climate action as a result. I'm really looking forward to reading that. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, in which we show a particular organism some love. Penny, what is it this time? Well, I'm really excited today because I think this is the first plant that we've featured so far. Um, so this week, I wanted to celebrate the highly unusual Wellwitchia mirabilis, which, uh, to my mind, is the weirdest plant in the world. It's got the weirdest name. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
So what is it? Why is it so weird? So it's a single species whose ancestors split off early in the evolution of the gymnosperms. Uh, So that's the group of plants that includes conifers like pines, as well as uh, plenty of other plants, including the ginkgo or maidenhair tree. But well, Wichio is not some majestic evergreen tree. It's just a sloppy mess. So it grows on the ground of the Namib desert and it's like nothing else. It produces just two leaves, but these grow continuously. So while the plant never really gets much taller than a metre or two, these two leaves just keep growing and they get progressively more shredded and tangled and bedraggled. Some plants can live to be a thousand or even two thousand years old. And so over time, these sort of tangled heaps can reach lengths of four metres and they just look like um, a big green mess in the middle of the desert. Are these very primitive plants? Is this what it might have been like, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago? So they are sometimes described as a living fossil and, you know, there's nothing else like them. They're really alone out there um, on their branch of the family tree. Obviously, um, everything on this planet has been around as long as everything else. So it it might have evolved uh, just as much as you or I have, but it is a glimpse at a type of lifestyle that we just don't really see in any other plant anymore. Wow. Okay, so why are we celebrating them this week? Well, sadly, new research suggests they may be in trouble. A study of one subpopulation of Welwitchia found that the plants aren't in great health and that their habitat is expected to rise in temperature by 2.5 degrees Celsius by 2050, with no sort of beneficial changes in rainfall or anything. The researchers who did this study say that the plant is at risk of extinction and should now be placed on their IUCN red list of endangered species. Right, so very bad news for Welwitchia. Yes, although it's not definite yet. There are other subpopulations of the plant and we don't know yet if they're faring quite as badly. But we do know overall that desert species will be particularly vulnerable to um, warming temperatures. Is it possible to, to cultivate them? Do I have to go to the Namib desert to see them or is there any other way to see one of these things? So yeah, it it is possible. I saw some a while back in the botanic gardens in Berlin, and uh, there they've been growing them for decades now. They've uh, developed the knack of actually growing them from seed all the way through to flowering and, and propagating them, which is amazing. And um, I was just checking this out yesterday. I believe the Chelsea Physic Garden in London has some relatively small specimens, so they are around. But given that this is a slow-growing plant, I think you only really get the full impression of their weirdness from the really old specimens. So we'll tweet a picture or two of some desert specimens from at New Scientist Pod. Next up, Rowan, you've been thinking about Mars a lot this week. I have. I've actually found it quite nice to imagine being on a freezing, radiation-bombarded, thin-atmosphered, desolate planet. It's been quite therapeutic. <laughs> I'm sure it has. Uh, but why, why in particular? Uh, well, there are lots of small volcanoes on Mars and what look like lava flows on the surface. But this week we learned that it might not be lava spewing from the volcanoes, but mud. So they're mud volcanoes. OK, so what's the evidence for that then? Yeah, it's quite, well, it's only suggestive evidence, um, but a team of planetary scientists measured the flow of mud down a hill at low temperatures and low pressures, similar to the surface of Mars. And they found that the surface of the mud froze quickly, but this protected the interior of the flow, which could then continue to sort of creep forward underneath, beneath the frozen shell, which is similar to what we see on lava flows on Earth, where the crust solidifies and the lava beneath keeps moving. 
Right, so what looks like a lava flow might actually be a mud flow. Yeah. I can't say I'm massively excited by that. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it is quite exciting. Uh, we know from radar imaging that there is a lot of liquid water beneath the surface of Mars, but we don't know much about the water cycle on the planet. It is interesting there might be a cycling of mud and water from reservoirs beneath the surface through volcanoes onto the surface. And evidence of this kind of geological activity can only be a good thing for those of us who hope that there's life on Mars, um, even a bacterial kind of life. Uh, but we won't know without going there whether what we see on Mars is mud or lava. So do we have any plans to go there or send a rover there to find out? Yeah, there's a few plans. Um, the next one is supposed to launch. The next one is from NASA. It's supposed to launch in July. I wish we could send it to some of the wet places on Mars, but many of these places are off limits to robots because of the fear that the robot will contaminate them with something they've brought from Earth. Um, these are NASA's planetary protection guidelines. NASA's worried that if we send a robot to a wet place on Mars, we might contaminate it. And that means if the robot detected microbial life, we couldn't be absolutely sure that it wasn't something we'd brought with us from Earth. Uh, but I think the bigger problem is that the Earth, any Earth microbes might move in and wipe out any Martian life that's clinging on there. Does everyone care as much as NASA about this? Does Elon Musk feel the same way? Uh, yeah, he doesn't seem to care about any Martian life. He's got big plans for starting a settlement on Mars. The plans are well advanced. Um, at the moment, his company SpaceX is planning to send cargo to Mars in 2022 and human missions soon after. The company wants to start a Mars base in 2024 and eventually build a self-sustaining community on Mars. Um, I asked him just before recording the show if his plans for a Mars base and settlement adhere to NASA's planetary protection guidelines, because it's important. It's important that we properly assess the past and present status of life on the planet. And he did reply to me, which is great, uh, but he completely ignored the question. He just said life needs to be multi-planetary to ensure its long term continuance. Mm, I, I do. I, I hate the idea of us going and destroying life on other planets, just as we've so successfully managed to do on Earth without yeah. realising it. Yeah, we'll probably come back to this next week. Uh, but speaking of SpaceX, they do have a historic mission coming up, don't they? Yeah, I mentioned this to Elon Musk, too. Uh, on May 27th, SpaceX is planning to launch its regular Falcon 9 rocket, but this time it's going to carry the Dragon capsule with two astronauts on board. This is the first time it's done this. Uh, it's a big deal. It's the first launch of people from American soil for nine years. It's the first time people will fly on a commercial spacecraft. And it's the first new spacecraft launched from the United States since the first space shuttle flight in 1981. So it's going to the International Space Station. And it's a really big deal for SpaceX and for NASA. If all goes well, this could really herald the start of commercial space travel. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guest Graham Lawton and thanks to you for listening. Do tell your friends about our show. Remember you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com and there's 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you use the code POD20. Yes, POD20 at checkout gets you your subscription discount. Do also listen to our sister podcast, The Big Interview. Just up there at the moment is a fascinating conversation with novelist Philip Pullman 
And coming up, we've got an interview with Nobel Prize winner and head of the Royal Society, Venki Ramakrishnan. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. New episodes go live each Friday. Do subscribe to our show at the usual place you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. Goodbye. Bye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.